0: Just bow your heads with me once more as we go to the Lord together to ask God's blessing on the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in Scripture that you are watching over your Word to perform it. So, watch over it now, we pray as we hear it preached as we take it in as we meditate on it watch over your word to perform it to perform it now here such as we are among us in our hearts watch over your word to perform it For Jesus' glory we pray. Amen. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? That is a question New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado asked in 2016 in a talk at Marquette University. The reason he asked it that way is that becoming a Christian in the first three centuries was incredibly Costly, more costly than it is today, although it is becoming more so today. Back then, it made you an outcast in the Roman Empire because, as he documents in detail, birth, death, marriage, the domestic space, civil and wider political life, trades and work, the military, socializing, entertainment, arts, and music were all filled with religious significance and association. With various kinds of divine beings end quote. And of course, Christian teaching forbade worship of other gods according to the First commandment. So why, in that social-economic, political context, <coughs> would anyone become a Christian? Well, sometimes it's been argued that Christianity displayed better, more convincing miracles than other religions. But, of course, there have always been and always will be non-Christian powers doing great signs. Moses himself had to contend with magicians in Egypt, turning their staffs into snakes. Saul consulted the medium of Endor to bring up Samuel from the dead. Peter had to deal with people calling a certain Simon Magus, the power of God that is called great in Acts 8. And of course, Jesus himself says in Matthew 24 that false Christs and prophets will arise and perform many great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So it must not have been the miracles. Well, what was it then that made Christianity worth the cost of conversion in the first three centuries. And Larry Hurtado concluded that it was Christianity's distinctive doctrines of a loving God and the offer of eternal life beyond the grave that outweighed all the social and political and economic costs of Christian conversion in this life. And we see some of this dynamic... And more playing out in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, John 3, where Jesus eventually leads Nicodemus into a consideration of God's love for sinners, moving him to send his son to die as a substitute penalty for sinners so that they might have eternal life. But where Larry Hurtado asked why on earth people become Christians in the first three centuries, this morning we are going to ask how, how on earth does anyone ever become a Christian in any century? How does that happen? How do you become a Christian? Do you become a Christian like other people become Muslims or Buddhists do you just decide one day? I think I'll be Christian. How? How indeed? Because in John 3, it seems impossible. Let's begin by reading it John 3, 1 through 10. John 3, 1 through 10. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again or from above. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone. Who is born of the Spirit? Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? The first point that Jesus wants to make to Nicodemus is that new birth is necessary and impossible. Humanly speaking, new birth is necessary and it is humanly impossible. Chapter 2 had ended with Jesus not entrusting himself to people who believed in him based on seeing his signs, his miracles. The last phrase of chapter 2 is that Jesus knew what was in man. And immediately here in chapter 3 verse 1, John introduces us to just such a man, and he introduces him as a man. A man who had believed in Jesus because he saw Jesus do signs. Nicodemus believes the signs, but Jesus doesn't believe in Nicodemus' faith. Just as he had said back in chapter 2, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Nicodemus is also a Pharisee and a ruler among the Jews, so he represents the most biblically and ethically literate class of Jewish religious people. And in chapter 3, verse 2, he comes to Jesus in the dark of night. Don't forget that. In the dark of night. And he begins, not with a question, but with a statement. And that should tip you off. Nicodemus... Thinks he knows more than he knows. We know. Really, Nicodemus, you're going to start a conversation with Jesus by telling him what you know. We know that you, oh, you're going to tell Jesus, you're going to start relating to Jesus by telling him what you know about him. We know that you have come from God as a teacher. And why does he know that? Because no one would be able to do these signs which you do unless God were with him. Now listen to that. Look at that in your Bible. Nicodemus believes Jesus is a powerful teacher sent from God. With God's approval and even with God's presence, God is with you. I know that about you. God is with you because you're doing miracles, and I believe in those miracles. But Jesus is not impressed with his faith, right? I mean, if somebody came to us saying those things about Jesus, we might very well say, well, let's fill up the baptistry. And Jesus says, not so fast. Nicodemus had said, unless you came from God, you wouldn't be able to do anything. And Jesus says right back to him, unless you are born again from above, you won't be able to see anything. You think you know me? You can see all the signs Jesus does. You could have been right there, seen them for yourself. You can even see that it is the power of the living God at work in Jesus' miracles. But what you cannot see without being born again is the meaning, the significance of those signs for the kingdom of God. Unless you are born from above again. That preposition that he uses has a double meaning, again and from above, and he means it in both ways. Unless you are born again from above, you cannot see Jesus' signs for what they are, even if you're looking straight at them like Nicodemus. That truth undercuts charismatic faith. Because for Jesus, faith in signs is not faith that saves. You can have faith in signs and not be saved. Do you see that from the text? That's what he's telling Nicodemus. I know you believe in my signs, and I know that you are not saved because of that belief. I know that you don't understand what you think you understand about me just because you believe in the signs. Sign faith is sight faith. That's how flesh believes, walking by sight. Prove it to my eyes, and then I will believe. And Jesus says, if that's how you believe in me, you don't believe in me. That kind of faith does not start a saving relationship with Jesus. Now, look at this. We are three verses in, and Jesus has already blown Nicodemus' mind. So, Nicodemus asks in verse 4 How is a man able to be born again once he becomes old? Surely he is not able to enter into his mother's womb to be born a second time. Now, look, Nicodemus is not playing dumb. He's being sarcastic. I would dare say he is making fun of Jesus. What am I supposed to do? Crawl back into the womb for a do over? Right. But it's kind of a nervous, self conscious sarcasm. He's he's, come on, Jesus, what am I supposed to do? What actually, yeah, what, what am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do? Do you know something I don't know? So in verse 5, Jesus drops the metaphor to speak plainly with a second, truly, truly, I say to you, over against all of Nicodemus' misunderstanding and the error of his Pharisee friends and his perceived self-confidence and what he's been taught. Of course, Jesus is not speaking of another physical birth. He's speaking of spiritual birth, being born of water and spirit. Unless anyone is born from water and spirit, he is not able to enter the kingdom of God. You cannot enter God's kingdom finally or even begin to enter into the meaning and significance of the signs of the kingdom in Jesus' miracles without being born from water and spirit. All you will be is impressed, not saved. For now, why can't you enter the kingdom without new birth from above? The reason is verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Flesh is mere humanity in its finitude and in its fallenness. Whatever is born of mere human nature remains mere human nature nature and retains both its finiteness and its fallenness. Whatever is born of spirit, of God's power, God's Holy Spirit from heaven, only that is spirit, and spirit bears a totally different character and power than flesh. Jesus will make a similar point in John 6.63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Translation, you can't become a Christian in the same way you become a Buddhist, or a Hindu, or a Muslim, or even a Jew. You don't just decide. Something has to happen to you. That's how bad it is. That's how different flesh is from spirit. Flesh cannot produce spirit in the sense that the earthly cannot produce the heavenly or the human comprehend the divine or the sinful produce the holy. There is no evolutionary process from flesh to spirit. There are no intermediate forms. And so flesh cannot do or even understand what spirit does. This is what makes new birth necessary. What is merely human and earthly cannot understand or inherit what is divine and heavenly. That is why Jesus tells him in verse 7, Look, you shouldn't be amazed by this stuff. This is 101, brother. If you want to understand the Christ who came from above, then you need to be born from above yourself. Now, if verse 6 spoke to the why question. Why is it necessary to be born from above? Then verse 8 speaks to the how question. How does the new birth happen or work? What are the mechanics of being born from above? Well, there's a mystery to it, kind of like the wind. The wind blows on its own, and you can't see it or trace it, but you can hear it, can't you? And you can feel it, and you can see the leaves blowing. It's the same with those born of the Spirit. You don't know how they were born again. You cannot see their new birth, but you always see the effects that they are born from above. Loving God. Obeying God. Loving God's people. Loving Jesus. Reading, digesting, and understanding His Word. Seeing the kingdom. Prioritizing the values of the kingdom and the ethics of the kingdom and the goals of the kingdom in your life. Being born from above is mysterious. There's an enigma to it. You can't grasp it, but you can hear it. You can't see it, But you can always see where it is and what it's doing. Now, imagine this is a TV show on the set of your favorite sitcom. The camera has been zoomed in on Jesus since verse 5. The next frame is verse 9. And you're looking at Nicodemus trying to take all this in. Jesus is explaining these things. He's leaning in, do you see? And Nicodemus, in the next frame, is looking at Jesus like, what? It's like Nicodemus has become a meme of himself in this text. He's looking at Jesus like a fourth grader taking calculus. Nicodemus is no closer to getting it than when he started. How is any of this possible? The reason I'm using possible language or ability language is that it is repeated throughout this text. And you see it in your translation with the word can or cannot. How is any of this possible? But what a fitting conclusion to that part of the conversation. Look back over this exchange. Nicodemus said in verse 2, no one can do these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus says in verse 3, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again? Verse 5, Jesus insists, no one can enter the kingdom unless he is born of water and the Spirit. And Nicodemus is still stumped as late as verse 9, how can any of this be? What are you talking about? Jesus, you are unnerving. And that is Nicodemus' last line in the scene. You notice, how did Nicodemus begin? With a confident statement We know that you. And how does he end? With a question. How can these things be? Stumped. So in verse 10, Nicodemus, seeing Nicodemus has come to an end of himself, Jesus shows him the irony of his own ignorance. Remember how Nicodemus started, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher sent from God. Jesus now ends this part of the conversation by saying back to Nicodemus, you are the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things. Nicodemus, we know. Jesus, you do not know. You don't know. You don't know what you think you know. Now, ESV interprets that as a question, but in context, it looks a whole lot more like a statement, an indictment, actually. Jesus expects Nicodemus of all people, the Pharisee, a ruler, a teacher, to understand these things. At the very least, Jesus thinks Nicodemus should expect more of himself than to be confused by these basics. Man, you should have learned this while you were playing with your dreidel. You're a teacher, man. Read your Bible. So if Jesus expects Nicodemus, the teacher, to know these things, what was Nicodemus teaching that he should have clued him in? He should have known it from the New Covenant promise of Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, I will put within you, you got to be born of water and the Spirit. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And what comes right after Ezekiel 36? Good, Ezekiel 37. That's right. The vision of the valley of dry bones. As I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. That, that is the best line in the whole Bible. Contrary to what Jeremiah says every Sunday morning during the adult ed hour. This is the best line. And behold, there was a rattling. Can you imagine this? Josh was reading this earlier in the service. And as he was reading it, I thought, I think this rattling was louder than I used to think it was because the whole valley was filled with them. Listen to that rattling in your brain and listen to how that would have sounded to Ezekiel as he's preaching the gospel. (laughs) Ezekiel's preaching, and all of a sudden he's like, What in the world is that? These bones are coming together. And it must have emboldened him. The bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. And say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come forth for the four winds, O breath. And breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. That is the gospel. That is regeneration. Friend, you do not need to just pray a prayer or walk an aisle or make a decision or fill out a response card. You need to be born again. You don't need to just believe different doctrine or make different friends or better choices. You need to be born again. You don't just need to turn over a new leaf or kick your habit or just admit that you're not perfect. You need to be born again. You need to receive a new heart, a new spirit, a new nature, a new power, a whole new principle of life to energize a new love and to inform a new knowledge and understanding and obedience to Jesus. To become a Christian is not just to decide to read your Bible and pray, or to decide to be a good person, or to decide to admit you need Jesus' help to accomplish your goals in your life. That's not being a Christian. To become a Christian means God gives you new birth, you're born from above. And just as you could not give birth to yourself physically, so you cannot give yourself birth from above. And that is the point. That is what Jesus wants you to admit. I can't become a Christian by myself, I can't just decide it. I'm that helpless. My flesh is that bad. I will never repent with my flesh. You're not in control of that. God is in control of that. And he will have you admit it by asking him for it. New birth is not some product that churches sell. You must seek and get new birth from the God of all life. So friend, if you call yourself a Christian, but you are clueless about how to understand your Bible and you are powerless and even wanting to fight your sin, and you have little or no love for Christ's people that draws you here week to week in the middle of the week and draws you out into other people's home in the middle of the week who love Jesus, then maybe you are a Nicodemus. You know much, but you understand little. You do all your spiritual disciplines from duty without any sense of delight. Your appetite for this world is still bigger than your appetite for God's word. Your interest in the world always wins out over your interest in the word. You have a reputation for being alive in Christ, but you are deader than a doornail to his cause in the world. You may be even a member in good standing of this church, but you cannot stand on your own two feet spiritually. If that's you, maybe you are trying to live the Christian life without first being born again as a real Christian. Well, no wonder you're miserable. No wonder it's like pulling teeth to get you here. No wonder nobody knows you and you don't want to know anybody else. You can't live the Christian life in the power of your anti Christian sin nature. That's stupid. Your flesh cannot be good enough for God's spirit. Your sin will never, your sin nature will never delight in God's holiness. Never. I don't care how nice you are. Your worldly heart will never delight in heavenly things. A self-worshipping heart will never delight in communing with Jesus. And a deceptive heart will never delight in God's truth. You must be born from heaven. You've got to get a new heart. How do you get it? You ask Jesus, who is the giver of all life. So young person growing up in a Christian home, homeschool kid, this goes for you too. You don't just need to know Bible answers and memorize catechisms. As proud as that may make your parents and as satisfied as they may be that that's all you can do. You don't just need to be modest and stay out of trouble and get good grades. And you are not alive in Christ just because your parents are. Maybe the Bible is boring to you because your heart is totally dead to it. Maybe the problem is not with the Bible. Maybe the problem is you just don't have a heart for it. Maybe you hate family devotions that your mom and dad give you because you find obedience stupid and church a drag because you literally don't have the heart for it. You need to be regenerated. You need to be born from heaven. You need a new heart that loves God's word, hates your own sin more than your siblings' sins against you, and loves being with God's people because they love Jesus like you love Jesus, even if you have nothing else in common with them. Why do you like coming here? Because someone else likes coming here and you guys like something that has nothing else to do with the church or with Christianity? You need a new heart from heaven with appetites for the things of heaven. You need a new nature, a whole new source of life, a new spirit, a new heart and mind from Christ for Christ. How do you get that? You ask Jesus to give you a new spirit. You ask him for his spirit because he's the one that distributes it. You ask him to make you a whole new creation in your heart. That's what we want for you. That's what Jesus wants. But you better not put it off because you will either be born from heaven or you will burn in hell. So new birth is necessary and it is humanly impossible. It only comes from God. It comes from heaven. And so also with faith. Faith is necessary, and it is humanly impossible to believe. John three eleven to 15. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of th- what we know to bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So Nicodemus began talking to Jesus by saying, we know. And now Jesus tells Nicodemus, what we know we have spoken and we testify to what we have seen. That puts the shoe on the right foot. You told me what you thought you knew but didn't know. Now I'm going to tell you what I do know and how I know it because I saw it. But Jesus says, we, probably referring to himself and the Holy Spirit, who he's just been talking about as the agent of the new birth, we know that we're talk- what we're talking about, and we're talking about what we know because we are testifying to what we have witnessed in heaven. Yet you and all the other Jewish leaders don't receive our testimony. There it is again. Nicodemus told Jesus he believed he was a teacher from God because he saw the signs, but Jesus still doesn't take that, assi- that sign faith as receiving Jesus' testimony. I know you believe my signs, The problem is you don't believe my testimony. You believe the signs, but you don't receive the testimony. You see how that's possible? You can believe the sign and not receive the testimony. Because you don't understand what the sign signifies. Nicodemus knows Jesus is from God. But that doesn't make Nicodemus a Christian who has a saving relationship with Jesus. In verse 12, Jesus has told Nicodemus earthly things, new birth in the metaphor of invisible wind, and he literally can't believe it. So how is Nicodemus possibly going to believe if Jesus starts giving him more advanced teaching of God and his kingdom without the earthly metaphors to help him understand? What if I don't dumb it down for you? What then? If you don't believe me, when I tell you how regeneration works on earth, how would you possibly believe me if I start telling you of things I've seen from eternity past in heaven? If you don't believe the heavenly basics and earthly metaphors, how are you going to believe heavenly heights? Look at the structure of that statement. If you don't believe, how will you believe? That is a crucial question. How will you believe earthly things if you didn't believe it when I told you those things as if they were earthly? And Jesus is still confronting you with that question today. If you don't believe now, how in the world are you going to believe? That question is not a put-off, though. It's a draw. Right into verse 13. Nobody understands the new birth apart from Jesus' revelation. The only way to believe is in connection with Jesus' revelation and redemption in verses 13 to 15. Verse 13, Jesus is saying that no one ever rises to understand heavenly things unless he submits himself to the understanding of the only one who's ever come down from heaven, the Son of Man, Jesus himself. No one can understand or believe in the new birth, its necessity, its meaning, its power, apart from Jesus' revelation, which is based on his eyewitness testimony of heaven as his home. But equally necessary for new birth is Jesus' redemption accomplished in his death, which is the point of verses 14 and 15. Just as no one can understand the new birth apart from Jesus' revelation, so no one can experience the new birth apart from Jesus' redemption. Just as no one can understand the new birth apart from Jesus' revelation, so No one can experience the new birth apart from Jesus' redemption. Faith is based on and put in Jesus' redemption. New spiritual birth, eternal life, comes to us in Christ as the renewal of physical life came to the sinful Israelites who looked to the bronze serpent in the wilderness. The new birth in verses 1 to 11 is the beginning of eternal life. Verses 14 to 15, and no one experiences that beginning apart from the good news and power of Jesus' redemption that was worked and accomplished in his blood, in his death, on the cross, being lifted up on the cross to die in our place for our sins. That's why Jesus refers to the bronze serpent. The connection is faith looking to the object of salvation to grab onto life from the clutches of a well-deserved death. The reason Israel was snake-bitten was not that God is unpredictable and crazy and you can't figure him out and you don't know what he expects or wants. The reason they were snake-bitten was that they sinned. It was their unbelieving complaint about the Exodus. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? That is unbelief complaining. And now the Jews of Jesus' day are complaining against him for cleansing the temple, John 2, because they don't believe that he has the authority to do that. As Israel was unbelieving about the Exodus, so the Jews of Jesus' day were unbelieving that Jesus was their king and savior. And yet just as God healed Israel of their unbelief and its penalty by the bronze serpent, So Jesus will heal his people of their unbelief by his death as their substitute penalty. All it took was a look to the bronze serpent and all it takes is faith looking to Jesus on the cross as our substitute for the sinful soul to be saved from the power and penalty of our own unbelief. It's that simple. So, friend, whether you are a Christian or not, you should look to Christ crucified and trust in Jesus Christ's death to atone for your sin and unbelief. Look to Christ. The Israelites had no one to blame but themselves for their snake bites. God would not have sent them if they hadn't complained in unbelief. And we have no one to blame for our sins but ourselves, contrary to popular opinion. The only one you have to blame for your sin is you. And the only one I have to blame for my sin is me. And yet God has set up Christ crucified as the bronze serpent to heal our guilty, sin-bitten souls. Jesus is God's provision for us. Look to him in faith. That is where you will find God satisfied with you in the sacrifice of Jesus for you. Christ's cross is where unbelief goes to die. And Christian, for every time you look at your sin, you need to look ten times at Christ crucified for your sins and risen from the dead for your justification we hold out Christ crucified to you go to the cross the power of the new birth flows from Jesus death and what is the root of all this hope of life why has Jesus come to be lifted up on the cross love is god's love in verse 16 for for god so loved the world That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Third and final point, faith trusts that God's love sent Jesus' light. Faith trusts that God's love is what sent Jesus' light. Verse 16 and 17 explain what Jesus is doing in the world to begin with. What's he doing here? How did he get here? Why is he here? Why is regeneration even a thing? Why did Jesus even come down from heaven into the world to begin with? Because God loved the world. That's why. Because God loved the world in the same way he loved Israel when he decided to save them from the consequences of their unbelief among the serpents in Numbers 21. Same reason. He loved the world bad as it is, just like he loved Israel, bad as they were in the wilderness. He had compassion, mercy, affection, pity, even for the world in its rejection of him. It was God's love to the world, bad as it was, that moved him to give up his only begotten son. And God's son was more dear to him than even Isaac was to Abraham. Yet God gave him over to death on a cross to become the substitute penalty for the sins of all those who would ever repent and believe in him. So that just as the Israelites who looked to the serpent didn't perish by their snakes, so believers in Jesus would not perish by their sins, but have eternal life and blessedness with God in Christ after they die. But who is the whoever that believes in Jesus? Who is whoever? In context, whoever can only be those enabled to believe by first being born again. Not because they saw Jesus do some miracle and were impressed at how it turned out in their lives. Not because they were already good and wise. You don't believe savingly with the flesh. You believe savingly with the spirit. You have to be born again to have real saving faith. You don't believe savingly with an old heart. You believe savingly only with a new heart. Regeneration, a new heart, a new spirit, a new life within is the prerequisite for faith and repentance. Why? Because the flesh does not repent of its sin or its unbelief or its sinful reliance on itself. Because the flesh always wants to begin its relationship with Jesus by saying, we know. And until you are regenerate, you will try to relate to Jesus like that. And he will not relate to you like that. He will not let your knowledge of him be the basis of your relationship with him. What is born of spirit is spirit and what is born of flesh is flesh. And this is why John 3.16 is even better news than we realized because our problem was bigger than we thought. We were not just sick in sin or lonely in sin or confused in sin or ignorant in sin. We didn't just have a psychological hang-up. We didn't just get hurt some way in the past. We weren't just disillusioned by some church and decided to forget it. We're not just even dirty in our sin. We were dead In our trespasses and sins, we were dry, lifeless bones. And until you admit that that is your pre Christ state, you cannot be saved. We were corpses decomposing in the grave, we had no life with which to believe. Salvation is not just God coming and knocking on the door of your heart, hoping that you will open the door to him and let him in. Salvation is Jesus coming to you with a heavenly pry bar and opening your casket and breathing new life into your corpse. That is salvation. That is regeneration. And you will not savingly believe until that happens. No one does. Until God breathes new life into us by his spirit to regenerate our hearts, to give us new birth, so that we see our sin, so that we know our need, and so that we have life in us, with which we want to gravitate towards and respond to Christ. Instead of always telling him, I know, I know, I know. Regeneration in verses 1 to 10 is the only way to obtain the faculty, the tool of the soul that repents. The new heart, the new life, birth and life from above is the new faculty of the soul, the spirit equipment that we need in order to believe and be saved. Some of you guys are handy. Some of you guys have tools that I I don't even know what to do with. what What do you do with that? And you use it all the time. That is what the new birth is. The new birth is the only way to do the job of faith. You are trying to use the wrong tool for the job if you're trying to believe and live the Christian life in the power of your flesh. The new life is the power tool that you need. And it's the only power tool that will do that job. God then does not just provide the object of faith in Jesus' revelation and redemption he doesn't just tell us this is what you need to believe God provides the faculty of faith the new capacity the new will the new aptitude of heart with which we trust by giving us new birth from above a new heart he implants in us a new and heavenly wellspring of faith and action that we did not have before God regenerated us but we do have now after he regenerated us If anyone believes in Jesus, she does not do that because she simply decided to begin believing, but because God put in her a new principle of faith in Jesus to love God in response to God loving her. God gives what he requires, or we remain dead in sin. Now, I'm just going to be, I'm going to switch gears here a little bit. This is going to feel like I'm going from second to fifth gear. You're going to hear a little bit of a grinding of gears in the five-speed manual transmission here. It's okay, because I'm going to make a public application of all this. Most of this has been private, internal, individual. Now I'm going to make a public application. The necessity of the new birth for faith is the reason that Christians think that a state-established church is a contradiction in terms. The state cannot establish a church any more than the flesh can believe. A church is made up of Christian converts. Christian converts become converted by being born again. New birth only comes by God's Spirit and the sword of the Spirit, never by the sword of the state. Nominal Christianity, Christianity in name only, that can be established by the sword. Believe or I'll kill you. Okay, okay. But true Christianity, new birth Christianity, that can never be accomplished by any kind of coercion, state-sponsored or otherwise. Christian Christian conversion never happens by coercion. Many Muslims feel obligated and justified to spread Islam by the sword. That's because you don't have to be born again to become a Muslim. You simply have to say the right thing even under duress. By contrast, Christians can only spread Christ by the word, not the sword, precisely because true Christian conversion can never be coerced. It can only be accomplished by God giving dead sinners new hearts to know, love, and serve the living God who reveals himself in the person and work and good news of Jesus. And that's why we preach it, because you can't be saved any other way. And therefore, we must pray as Christians that God gives others new birth so that they can repent and believe. All of our evangelism is useless unless God gives other people new birth and opens their hearts to what we're saying in the gospel, like God opened Lydia's heart to what Paul was saying. We cannot rely on either our goodness or our giftedness in our evangelism. We cannot be holy enough. We cannot be convincing enough or winsome enough or hospitable enough or wise enough. The doctrine and necessity of the new birth as prior to to Christian faith means that conversion is not our work. Conversion is God's work because it cannot happen without the new birth. And God knows it. And therefore, we must ask him to do it for other people in prayer together. We sing in one of our favorite hymns, we long to see thy churches full, that all the chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming grace. Well, if that's going to happen, if we're going to see this church full of new converts born to Christ, we had better get to praying. Because it doesn't matter how long I preach these things or how clearly I preach them or how clearly or how long or how many evangelistic conversations you have with your unbelieving friends and neighbors and family work and coworkers. If God doesn't give them new birth, new life, it's all for naught. His spirit is poured out on us as a spirit of prayer and supplication for the regeneration and conversion of people around us. Elginites, suburbanites. And here's the most comforting part of regeneration for evangelism. We Christians can and should speak the gospel and leave the results of our evangelism to God. Once we realize that conversion depends on God regenerating people, it releases us from the pressure to become pragmatic and the depression of not seeing the results we might want in the time we might expect. It is not that the need for regeneration makes evangelism useless. It is that regeneration is the only thing that will make our evangelism effective. And as a church, we've got to get that through our heads. Or else we won't pray. And all of this releases us from trying to produce a, a result into the freedom of simple faithfulness. God's love saves us from his judgment. What's unique about Christian teaching on salvation is that it's God's love that saves us from his own judgment. God gave Jesus so that we wouldn't perish. Perish from what? Depression? Other people sin against you? No. No. From self-loathing or self-pity or low self-esteem? Is that what God doesn't want you to perish from? Loneliness and confusion and aimless, purposeless life? Well, ultimately, from God's own condemnation of us for our sin. God brought the snakes to bite Israel because of their sinful complaining and God then provided the bronze servant to save them from the snakes that he himself sent. Same in verses 17 and 18. God didn't send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Saved from what? Saved from him. From his wrath against their sin and ours. Judged for what? Judged by whom? Judged by God. For our sins. He's saving us from himself. From his own judgment. Judgment. The one who does not believe in Jesus is condemned already. Sinner, we as a church do not and cannot condemn you. Jesus does not even condemn you. God condemns you for your sins. Just like he was condemning us for ours until we trusted in Jesus. We are like you in your sinfulness. We shared your sorrow under God's condemnation, but then God in his love gave us new hearts to see Jesus for who he is and to see ourselves for who we are in our own sinfulness. And he can do the same for you. We want them to. That's why we preach these things. Not so that you will be condemned, but so that you will realize you already are condemned. So that you would trust in Christ as God's own provision to take your condemnation in your place. The God who condemns you is the only God who can save you from his condemnation. And he does that in Christ. So again, it's not the judginess of either Jesus or other Christians that condemns people. People are condemned because they love moral and spiritual darkness and refuse to love God's light and moral truth in Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying here. People are judged by God because they judge Jesus as if he were a fraud. They don't believe him. When actually he is the son of God. Yet it was to save just such people from his own condemnation of them that God himself sent Jesus to take their condemnation in his body, on the cross, as their substitute, and as the object of their trust. The tragedy is that people refuse. Instead of being born from heaven, they prefer to burn in hell. And that's why God's righteous judgment remains on those who do not love him back. The one who does not believe has already been judged. Verses 18 and 19. Because he has not believed in the name of of the only begotten Son of God. Your flesh cannot be good enough for God's Spirit. Your flesh cannot understand what God's Spirit is doing in Christ. Therefore, God's verdict on your attempt at righteousness is already in. Nobody's wondering if your righteousness is going to be good enough for God. Quit wondering. It's not. That's why unrepented unbelief means your judgment is already on you. Jesus said that, not me. That is why God sent Jesus, though, to be good enough on our behalf and then to suffer God's condemnation as if he had committed our sins. In that sense, Jesus did not come into the world to judge the world because the world was already under God's judgment for its unbelief. But for all those who refuse to trust in Jesus, to save them from the condemnation of their sins and earn them eternal life, why do they remain unsaved? Is it Because God does not love them. No. It is because they do do not love Him. Don't blame God for your lovelessness to Him when you refuse Him on His terms. You are not wiser than God. Look down in verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light. Now, remember in verse 16, God loved the world by giving us his only son, like God loved Israel by providing the bronze serpent for their healing. He loved us by giving us Jesus because he had compassion on us in our sin. Now, when God loved us and sent his son to us, what did men love? Did men love God in return? Did men love Jesus? No. Verse 19. The light, Jesus, has come into the world because God so loved the world. And the world loved darkness rather than light. The problem of human unbelief and condemnation is not that God does not love the world. God does love the world. The problem is the world does not love God's light in Christ. That's how bad the flesh is. It cannot love spirit. The world does not agree with God that we need the light of Jesus or that our sinfulness deserves God's wrath and judgment or that a justly righteous and angry God would actually give up his only begotten son to pay the penalty we deserve for our sin or that such a God would take our sins that seriously. The world thinks, you've got to be kidding me. People do not love the God who so loved the world. That's the problem. People do not love the light God sent to save the world. People love darkness rather than light. People call light darkness and darkness light, whether it's sexual immorality or abortion or greed or historic racism or reverse racism. That's the problem. Friend, take an honest look at your heart. If you reject this Jesus because you love how being an unbeliever leaves you free to sin under the cover of your own spiritual darkness so that you're only accountable to your own darkness, that's a false enlightenment. It is darkness to reject God's revelation and redemption in Jesus. And for Jesus to end this conversation with distinctions between light and darkness is awfully ironic, is it not? When did Nicodemus come to Jesus in verse 2? At night. And now Jesus is saying that people don't want to come to the light because they love darkness more than light. He's saying that to Nicodemus in the darkness. Light doesn't just warm. It illumines, it exposes, it uncovers. It makes visible in public what was hidden in private. For all those who practice evil... Hate the light and do not come into the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. So, when God sends light, the unrepentant sinner resents the light and he says, That's too bright, shut it off. Like going into your teenager's room at 11 o'clock in the morning and pulling the shades and saying, Hey man, get up. And he says, It's too bright, mom, turn it off. That is what it's like for an unbeliever to respond. To the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's too bright. It's too much light. It's always too much light for the flesh. But the one who does the truth comes to the light. And so it may clearly be seen that his works have been carried out in God. Verse 20 to 21 explain the differences between... Christians and non-Christians, as they appear to us. On the one hand, people we see rejecting Jesus do so because they love sin and don't want to be exposed in it. Darkness is their natural habitat, according to Herman Ritterboss. It's their element. They feel most at home in the darkness. On the other hand, people we see loving Jesus do so not because they're morally superior, but because they want to show the world that God has done a regenerating work in their hearts. This is how new life responds to light. I love it. When I used to love darkness. And light is now where they feel most at home. Which begs the question, friend, what is your natural element, light or darkness? And notice, you can be a Nicodemus and still be in the dark. Lots of Bible knowledge, very moral, respectable position of authority in society, even belief in Jesus' miracles as proof of God's power. And in the dark. So what will you want to talk about when this service is over? Where will you spend the rest of this day and week? In the light or in the darkness? For there is no salvation from God's righteous wrath except by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But human flesh cannot muster anything but sign faith. It cannot produce saving faith. There is no faith without regeneration of heart. And there is no regeneration of heart unless God is pleased to give it. If all this stuff just bores and frustrates you, The problem is not the Bible or even the preacher, as bad as he may be. According to Jesus, the problem is you don't have the heart for it. But if you're convicted now of your sin and your deadness to God and Jesus, and if you are trembling at your love for darkness rather than light, and if for all those reasons you see Christ as necessary to your salvation from God's wrath now, then that is evidence that God is creating something in you that you could not create on your own. He is creating a new heart that wants to believe. So you should trust in Jesus. You should repent of your sins. You should be baptized into the membership of the local church. You should come into the light and enter with us into the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are far more at your mercy than we had supposed. We are far more helpless than we had known. And what we thought we knew, even about you, we did not know. Forgive us for our hubris and pride. Forgive us for our vaunted self-confidence in our own religious knowledge and morality. Give new birth to all those who are still dead in their sins today. Give them repentance and faith. May they understand themselves to be born anew from above. Give them a new inner taste and delight for Christ and his word and his people, for communing with him in prayer, and for his holiness reproduced in their lives. And do this so that Jesus would be magnified among us as the giver of all life. For his sake we pray, amen.